I think the most important issue and the most difficult hurdle for people to jump over is the fact that this is deliberate. You, know, you, you can tell anybody in America that the public education system is failing and they'll be like, yeah, I know. It's not even a controversial thing. Everybody knows, the people in the system know this, the, the parents know this, the, everybody knows this. Hey everybody, welcome back to Fearless with Mark and Amber, the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. Well, happy Thursday to you. My name is Amber Archer, producer and researcher here at the Filmmaking Ministry of Fearless Features. And joining me as always is my husband, also a researcher, producer, director, author, and speaker at Fearless Features. You wanna say hi? I was was counting how many titles I give versus how many titles you have. Well, I'm humble. I wanna make sure that I have the proper (laughs) amount of titles. Right. (laughs) I think we're good. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. So if you're new to the program, welcome. And you may be wondering what Fearless with Mark and Amber is all about. Well, we are a husband and wife filmmaking team on a mission to share biblical values and truth in the ever increasingly hostile cancel culture that we see today. We are honored that you're joining us today. Hello. Welcome. You can check us out at fearlessfeatures.org. That's where you can get archives of this program if you've missed some of the shows over the last few weeks. It's also a great place to make a donation to help us share the truth and reality of what's affecting our society today, not just what's spoon-fed through the uh, agenda-driven mainstream media. So as promised, we are going to share a recent sit-down interview we did with Alex Newman. And he is a friend of our program because Mm -hmm. we have talked about him before. I can't tell people enough to buy the book that he co-authored with Dr. Samuel Blumenfeld, Crimes of the Educators. And also this one. I've been reading. He gave me a copy of his new book, Deep State, the the Invisible Government Behind the Scenes. Really good book. Right. And and just to introduce Alex again to you guys. So he's an award-winning international journalist. He's an educator, author, and consultant who co-wrote the book Crimes of the Educators. He's also the executive director of Public School Exit. And he'll talk to you and you guys will hear about that in just a moment. And I just know that you guys are going to be blown away by this multi-part conversation because I can tell you it's a lot to digest. One of the first things I said to Alex when we sat down, I said, you know, after reading books, Crimes of the Educators, it's like walking around eyes wide open and you see it all for what it is. You took the red pill, didn't you? Oh, my word. <laughs> Here's it's his, re- it's his reference to the Matrix again. And had I had I not watched it just recently with mm-hmm. him, we talked about that on an earlier podcast. You've been unplugged from the Matrix. Oh, my goodness. And you guys, we've been off social media. We've been off of Facebook, off of Instagram, off of everything. And it has been wonderful. Yeah, it really has. I mean, it's so freeing. Get off of social media. <laughs> Get off of Facebook. Right. So you guys, and if you want to contact us, email us. Please send us emails because I cannot, we don't have, you know, I think our social media accounts finally deleted today mm-hmm. because, you know, they... They so generously keep your account sort of active in the background for 30 days, just in case you want to come back. Because why? Because it's an addiction to most people and they know that you'll be back. And we just talked about addiction, although we Mm -hmm. didn't talk about social media addiction. We were talking about like substance abuse addictions. Right. Right. But Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I would issue a challenge to everyone to do not a 30 day, but a 31 day social media purge. Why 31? Because... Delete your schedule your oh, account oh, for so deletion. That it, it actually deletes. And then at 31 days, it'll be gone and you can't go back to it. Yeah. Anyways, Ta-da-da. speaking anyway. of speaking of uh, things on the lighter side, uh, if you're not familiar with the Babylon Bee. Oh, the Babylon Bee. <laughs> the Babylon Bee is a it's a website, a Christian satire website. And I just <laughs> I have to share one of the headlines 
that uh, caught my eye. <clears throat> Conservatives sit down for a relaxing evening of being insulted by every major corporation in America. <laughs> <laughs> I encourage you to go to the Babylon Bee and uh, read their articles. Oh, They're we'll leave funny. links. We love them. <laughs> but it reminds me because we were at Costco last week and the guy helping us at the you know the self checkout oh, yes. doesn't really mean self checkout it means somebody stands there and does it for you but he asked and he was trying to be nice you know so who are you you going to watch watching oh, the big game this I, weekend because i bought a bunch of wings yeah i love wings so he thought <laughs> we were having a super bowl party and i i might have been a little short with him but i think i, I wasn't too i wasn't trying to be mean but i said no i have no interest in watching the super bowl bunch yeah. of overpaid whiners <laughs> And he said, he kind of looked at me, oh, and I said, yeah, if you can't stand for my anthem, then I'm not going to waste my time watching you play play a game. Not your anthem. You have your own anthem? I do. (laughs) (laughs) That might get a little scary, folks. You didn't know about Uh, my anthem? How long have we been married? my own theme song. 16 years now, and I I still, I don't know, been together. (laughs) (laughs) I'll share it with you sometime. Okay. But anyway... Mm-hmm. I've also got some uh, some information to share here as we go into talking about our, our interview with Alex Newman. Part one of, I don't know how many parts this is going to end up being because he had so much to talk about. Oh my about. goodness, yeah. Um, so he's gonna, you're going to hear him reference something called the Old Deluder Satan Act. <clears throat> in which we will leave this for you guys yes. in the blog, because you have to see it to believe it. You really do. This is from uh, 1647 mm-hmm. from Massachusetts, and I'm going to read it to you. It's three paragraphs. It's it's not too bad. Uh, and this is 1647, so you got to bear with the English. It's you know not quite what we're used to now. Um, so it being one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures, as in former times, keeping them in an unknown tongue, so in these later times, by persuading from the use of tongues, that so at least the true sense and meaning of the original might be clouded by false glosses of saint-seeming deceivers, and that learning may not be buried in the graves of our forefathers in church and commonwealth, the Lord assisting our endeavors, it is therefore ordered by this court and authority thereof." that every township in this jurisdiction, after the Lord hath increased them to the number of fifty householders, shall then forthwith (laughs) appoint one within their town to each to teach all such children as shall resort to him to write and read, whose wages shall be paid either by the parents or masters of such children, or by the inhabitants in general, by way of supply, as the major part of those that order the prudentials of the town shall appoint, provided that those which send their children be not oppressed by paying much more than they can have them taught for in other towns. And it is further ordered that where any such town shall increase to the number of 100 families or householders, they shall set up a grammar school, the masters thereof being able to instruct youth so far as they may be fitted for the university. And if any town neglect the performance hereof above one year, then every such town shall pay five pounds per annum to the next such school till they shall perform this order. From the Laws and Liberties of Massachusetts, reprinted from the copy of the 1648 edition. 
This is from the Harvard University Press. <clears throat> the Old Deluders Satan Act. Right, and you'll hear Alex reference that, but I wanted to read it to people. I find it fascinating. It is fa- fascinating. I mean, because what do, what do we know? What do we know from Scripture? Satan is a father of all lies, mm-hmm. and he loves to he loves to keep people ignorant. Yeah, we we, we there's a saying that we have said many times in this house that one of the greatest lies that Satan ever uh, perpetrated on the world is the belief that he doesn't exist. Right. And that's really very true of where we are now. Or that hell isn't real. Or that hell isn't real. Same same general principle there. So uh, Alex is going to talk about uh, the beginnings of the public or government schooling system. Mm -hmm. Uh, A couple of notes. He's going to talk about a man by the name of Robert Owen, who was a utopian socialist. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not going to go too deep into that, but I just want to make a note. Robert Owen, the utopian socialist, was basically a billionaire industrialist from Europe. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting how many times we see billionaire industrialists get the notion in their heads that they have the whole universe figured out and they're going to tell all of us how we should live. Mm -hmm. Never mind the fact that the way that they have built their fortune is through capitalism. Mm -hmm. Then they decide, now I've got it figured out. The door closes behind me. I'm the last one. Nobody else is allowed. (laughs) Right. Can't come play in my sandbox. Hello, Jeff Bezos. Hello, Bill Gates. Hello, the Rockefellers. Henry Ford did this too. I don't know if we remember that, but Henry Ford, once he made his bazillions of dollars, tried to build a utopian society. I want to think it's down somewhere down in the Amazon jungle. Now you're going to make me look. Right. Well, (laughs) but it and it always turns out the same. I'm already researching stuff. But Robert Owen. Uh, bought an entire town in Indiana, down by Evansville, down by Evansville, (laughs) which is the southwest corner of our state. Um, It was called Harmony, Indiana, and it had basically fallen apart. And he came in and bought the whole town and renamed it New Harmony, Indiana. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's one last thing before we get into Alex. There are some fascinating things still in New Harmony, Indiana, one of which I found is called the Roofless Church. It's super weird. Is an open-air interdenominational church. Uh, was commissioned by Jane Blaffer Owen, the wife of a descendant of Robert Owen. It is an open-air park surrounded by a wall, and there is one roof-like structure. It looks like a mushroom. Uh Roof-like structure inside the compound, which is the cover for the statue of the Descent of the Holy Spirit. And this is a whole other episode (laughs) on who made this sculpture. Because I saw the pictures and I thought, what in the world is that? And I I, I had to do some digging to find who this guy was Mm -hmm. and what the statue supposedly means, this sculpture. So... Anyways, so, well, and also I wanted to share just real quickly was an article that I found because what what we're talking about is education and Alex is going to go into um, quite a bit of the education, but it's, and we've talked about, about this before, the illiteracy rate Mm -hmm. in America. And I found an article from 2019, this was 2019, 
And the, the title read, Illiteracy is a national emergency unfolding across America, and it's only getting worse. And you'll hear Alex talk about it. But, you know, I just grabbed a quick blurb out of there. And it says, more than 30 million Americans cannot read or write above a third grade level. The strong correlation between illiteracy and incarceration, unemployment and suppressed GDP are well established. 85% of juveniles in the court system are functionally illiterate, as are 60% of prison inmates. Now, to say that we have a reading problem is an understatement. And I would I would venture to guess that probably at least 50% of those in Congress are functionally illiterate, too. Because I don't think that they read. <laughs> well, I doubt, I doubt that, that but but I don't think that they're actually reading that. No, they, they, I really don't think that they do. I mean, you remember when they were trying to pass the Affordable Care Act and they said, well, we have to pass the bill to know what's in it. Well, that's just politics. I mean, I it, really, well, <laughs> it is, but maybe it's it is just that they're just that ignorant. So anyway, I don't know. See, the husband and wife show, we, we agree <laughs> to disagree sometimes. <laughs> So anyway, we, so we disagree on whether they're <laughs> whether they're purely evil or evil and ignorant. <laughs> okay, that's as far as it goes. That's here. as far as it goes here. So anyway, so you guys listen in to this recent sit down interview we had with Alex Newman. Uh, so I'm Alex Newman. I'm a journalist and an educator and an author. Uh, I'm also the executive director of Public School Exit. It's a new ministry we founded to help uh, liberate as many children as possible from government indoctrination centers posing as schools. And um, education is my passion, partly because I realized some years ago that all the other issues that I'm passionate about and all the other issues that I care about uh, run directly through education. And if we don't address the crisis in education, the babies are going to keep being slaughtered. The government's going to keep being out of control. The illegal wars are going to continue forever. And so education is where it's at. And uh, it, it pains me what they're doing to children. And that's how I got into this. So I also teach um, high school seniors. I'm a homeschool dad, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And uh, I feel like, you know, the, the literacy issue is so important to me. I feel like God has called me to this because if you can't read, you can't read God's word. And if you can't read God's word, you are going to be deceived. You are going to be lost. You are going to be misled and manipulated. And so um, it's just it's just a passion of mine to make sure that uh, we save as many children as possible from illiteracy. How did you get into researching for your book, Crimes of the Educators? Well, it started back in... I think I was still in college. I came across a little blurb in a local newspaper about the development of these new national standards. And, and this was before anybody was talking about Common Core. And it was just a tiny article. It was, you know, one of those little blurbs about what's going on. Uh, I was like, hmm, that's weird. I, national standards? <laughs> what happened to federalism? And I thought that was a, a state and a local issue. I started digging into it and came across Common Core and um, was horrified by it. And I think it was in 2012, I realized that, wow, this is pretty significant. This, this really is national standard. This really is an effort to nationalize the education system. Little did I know, I was still just getting my feet wet in this. I didn't realize they had already nationalized the education system. This was the formal unveiling of the nationalization. And so I started digging into Common Core 
I believe this was 2012, wrote a big cover story about it in a magazine and realized, wow, something is really, really wrong here. And, and I interviewed people who were involved in this process and it, I mean, even the people from the validation committee. I called up one of the ladies, the only English expert on the validation committee. She's like, these things are terrible. You know, they, they, they put me on there as a rubber stamp and uh, there's no way I'm going to sign off on that. Um, so I knew something was really wrong. And I started writing more and more about what was happening in that field. And then the, the real moment that kind of turned this into a lifelong mission was when I got a phone call from Dr. Samuel Blumenfeld and uh, a former supervisor of mine and a friend of mine who worked at WorldNet Daily, which uh, also had a book publishing division. I'm like, hey, what would you think about co-writing a book with Dr. Sam Blumenfeld? I was like, what, really? I knew Dr. Blumenfeld. He and I wrote for a lot of the same publications. Uh, I didn't know him personally, but I had a very high opinion of him and his work. So that got me started on really doing the deep dive into you know, way beyond Common Core. Where did all this all come from? Where did we go wrong? So I read everything that Sam ever wrote. I think it was 13 books that he did on education. I read every one of them. And um, by the time we started working on the book, I realized, wow, this is like the hill to die on. And that's what really got me interested. Your best view as to what it is people have to understand first, especially about the literacy. I think the most important issue and the most difficult hurdle for people to jump over is the fact that this is deliberate. You know, you, you can tell anybody in America that the public education system is failing and they'll be like, yeah, I know. It's not even a controversial thing. Everybody knows the people in the system know this, the, the parents know this, the, everybody knows this. But then to get them to realize that this isn't an accident, that this was actually planned this way. And, I, and when I explain to people, the system's not broken. The system's doing exactly what it was set up to do. That's the hard part for people to understand, but that's the critical part to understand. Because if you don't understand that this was by design, that evil people did this with the intention of dumbing down our children, of, of turning our nation into uh, a bunch of illiterates, of, of turning us away from God. If you don't understand that, then nothing else makes sense. And then we just then we just have to fix. We just have to do a reform here. We just have to change new standards. You know, you, it, we just need more money. So there's all these other excuses. But once you understand that this was deliberate, everything changes. Uh, but the hard part, the hurdle is, well, why would they do that? Why would they want to dumb us down? They wouldn't do I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want other people's kids to be dumb. I wouldn't want to turn other people's kids away from God. Why would anybody want to do that? But uh, of course, they, they forget that all throughout human history, throughout all lands, all times, there have been psychopaths with a desire to rule over other people, with a desire to harm other people. Um, and we would be absolutely naive to think those people don't exist in America, haven't existed in America, and that they wouldn't pursue the most logical avenue for putting such a dastardly plan in motion, which is shaping the minds of children. Give people an overview of this plan. Well, it, it, it happened over such a long period of time that there is no clear coordination from the beginning to the end, but they've all been moving in the same general direction. And so I, I've kind of a brief chronology of what happened and the key players, I think, explains what, what really went on. So I, I put, other than the really old school, like Plato, you know, Plato was an advocate of government education. The guy was a totalitarian lunatic. We should be ruled by philosopher kings because regular people are too incompetent. So I put them aside because nobody took that seriously for a few thousand years. Um, and you, you had very well-meaning uh, Puritans and pilgrims 
who wanted to make sure people could read. And you know, some people mistakenly look at that and say that was the beginning of the American public school system. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, uh, that was just an effort to make sure everybody could read. It was led by parents. And the purpose, as they explained very clearly in the legislation, was to make sure everybody could read the Bible. The purpose of the people who've done this to us now was literally the exact opposite. Uh, and so the, the first legislation that was ever passed on education, uh, this was back in the 1640s in what was then the colony of Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, was the Old Deluder Satan Act. And their purpose was to make sure that people would not be deceived by Satan. And so when you read the legislation, it's, I, I love the legislation, it says that uh, the, one of the chief projects of that Old Deluder Satan is to keep men from knowledge of the scriptures because if they don't have the scriptures, then they can be deceived, he can manipulate them. So he said, to that end, we need to make sure that in every town of sufficient size, uh, every child can read. And so for that purpose, parents should come together and, and if necessary, hire somebody to teach all the children to read who wouldn't have learned at home or whatever. Um, then you look at the, the genesis of our modern public education system, which was a complete break from that. And, and I put the beginning with Robert Owen. Now, Robert Owen was a communist before communism was cool, uh, even before Karl Marx. And he rejected God. He rejected the Bible right off the start, which is what led him to idiotic conclusions like we should abolish private property. We should get rid of the family, things like that. So he set up a communist commune in Indiana and it failed in less than two years because, of course, when you get rid of private property, when you get rid of God's divine order, um, things fall apart very quickly. But he came to exactly the wrong conclusion. Now, his conclusion was that the reason it didn't work was because the children had not been formed from the time they were tiny into collectivists. And so he came up with this idea that what really was needed was for the government to take over the education system. And he had written about this already. It, was, it wasn't something that came to him after the, the colony. He had already believed that government should take over education. He wrote a series of essays on those. And as he tells it, uh, the Prussian ambassador got a hold of these essays and took them back to the Prussian dictator. And the Prussian dictator fell in love with the idea. Now, to his credit, the Prussian dictator was at least ostensibly a Christian. Uh, but so he ordered his interior minister to set up a system of government schools. And they compelled parents to send their children there by law. And, you know, for us, this is kind of normal, right? We, we grew up in a world where the almost all children are educated by the government, where it's just you know, as normal as apple pie and as American as apple pie that the government should educate our kids. What, what year is this? Uh, this is the early 1800s. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so he, he comes up with these ideas. They're implemented in Prussia. Uh, and it really is a totalitarian system of so-called education. It's really more of an obedience training program to turn the children into good little statists than to actually educate them. Um, but I think for the average person today, it's hard to understand how radical that was. Because back then, parents and the church was really in charge of education. The idea that government would do the educating of children, I mean, that, that really was a, a revolutionary idea. But it caught on in Prussia, and there were more than a few very prominent Americans, also you know, utopians, they rejected the Bible as the inerrant word of God, they a lot of them were Unitarians, they rejected the, the doctrine of the Trinity, and therefore they rejected the Bible. Um, and, and they saw what was happening in Prussia, they thought, wow, that's really neat, we should try that here. And so Horace Mann was really the agent of these people. Let me, let me rewind just a tad too. 
Because one of the things that Robert Owen, the communist, did to advance this idea, and we know this from a whistleblower, uh, Orestes Brownson, he actually wrote a, a whole book explaining what had happened. So there was the creation by Robert Brown of what he described as a, what the whistleblower described as a secret society modeled on the carbonari of Europe. Um, and, and I've explored all this in, uh, in a series of columns at the Epic Times, if people are interested. That's a fascinating history that almost nobody knows because it's, it's just been buried. But so he created the Secret Society, and this Orestes Brownson was involved in the Secret Society. He was helping to organize uh, Upper New York, New York State. And he said that the purpose of the Secret Society was to, first of all, influence public opinion and change public opinion so that people would be at least okay with the idea of government educating the children, and also to get men elected to the legislatures who would also be in favor of government taking over the education system. And again, this was a radical idea at that time, but they worked quietly and nefariously behind the scenes. Uh, Orrisus Brownson eventually came to Christ and repented of this evil that he had been involved in, blew the whistle and exposed it all in the book. But it did take root. And um, actually, uh, surrounding Harvard, there was a lot of these Unitarian, and of course, Harvard was at one time a wonderful Christian school, but over time it was taken over by utopians and, and Unitarians. And they really liked this idea of having the government educate children. So they put up one of their front men, uh, Horace Mann, who was also uh, Unitarian, rejected the Trinity, rejected the Bible. And he also believed government ought to take over the school system. So he was a socialist and, and what we today might describe as a humanist. I mean, he maybe had some nebulous conception of a divine being, but he was adamant that the Bible was, was bad, that it was you know, handicapping humanity. So he wanted to get it out of the schools. And he said so. Uh, you know, we got to get rid of the sectarianism. And so with help from these wealthy backers around Harvard, these Unitarians, they got Horace Mann uh, selected by the legislature to serve as the first ever secretary of education of any state in America. We had never had a position of secretary of education for any of our states. It was just unheard of. So Horace Mann becomes the first secretary of education, goes over to Prussia, studies the system that they've got going there, falls in love with it. I mean, he, he's, this is brilliant. We need to import this to uh, Massachusetts. So he starts building this thing in Massachusetts. And right away, the quackery came into the school system. For example, he starts promoting this phrenology, this idea that the size and the shape of your skull influences your personality and your intelligence. And of course, now we look back at that, we think, how could they have been so dumb to believe that? But he actually started pumping this into the minds of the teachers. So one of the things he took from Prussia was the idea that the government shouldn't just educate the children, it should also educate the teachers. So he set up a, a group of what they called normal schools. Um, these were basically teacher training institutions, and they started teaching the teachers phrenology and other quackery, trying to standardize everything. They started demonizing private schools and parents educating their own children as if there were something backwards or ridiculous about this. And um, right away, again, the, the quackery came in. So one of the things that Hor one of the innovations that Horace Mann brought into the school system was the whole word method of teaching reading. Now, he, he tried this out in schools in Boston, and it was a disaster. In fact, it was such an unmitigated disaster that within a few years, all the headmasters of the, of the public schools in Boston signed a, a brilliant essay. And actually, Sam Blumenfeld reprinted this uh, as an appendix in his book, um, the new illiterates and how to prevent your child from becoming one. 
um, he reprinted this essay. And it, you know, it's very diplomatic the way they spoke back then. They're not like, hey, you're, you're a doo-doo head. But they said, well, you know, this is not a logical way of teaching reading. It doesn't work. We're, we're not having good results with this. So we're going to stop doing that. Um, and, you know, in Horace Mann's defense, he might not have known what the effects would be. The, the people who developed this actually did it with the best of intentions. They were Christians. Uh, they were running uh, an asylum for what they called at the time deaf and dumb. So kids who couldn't hear and kids who couldn't speak. Uh, and the problem with teaching them to read was how do you teach a child who can't hear phonics? Because you can't teach them that a P makes a P sound, for example. So they said, well, what if we teach the kids to memorize the whole word as if the word itself were a symbol? And for deaf children, this was a, a wonderful development. It opened up this whole new world for them. Well, when they tried it in the public schools in Boston on non-deaf children, what happened was exactly what we see today on a massive scale in America. Children hate reading, they become illiterates, they stop reading. So exactly what happened then is happening today. Well, anyways, long story short, um, this method was debunked. They took it out of the schools and it didn't come back for about half a century. So Horace Mann, we'll come back to that later, but so Horace Mann then, after he finished his job as Secretary of Education in Massachusetts, became a, a traveling evangelist, a traveling snake oil salesman, uh, preaching the good news of government education. And so he went to legislatures all over the country and tried to convince them that they should pass laws mandating that parents hand their children over to government. Uh, they should pass laws creating government schools and government training programs for the teachers of those schools. Um, and it took a while. Again, this was, you know, it's hard I think for an average American to comprehend how radical this was back then, because after many, many centuries of parents and church educating children, the idea that Caesar would come in and educate them was weird. Uh, that's why they needed punishments and things for the parents who wouldn't comply. Um, but that's what they did, and, and gradually this started catching on. Um, by the end of, or by the early 1900s, almost all the states had passed uh, compulsory education laws. They had created government school systems. Uh, the southern states were a little bit slower to catch on, but they eventually were brought along, especially after Reconstruction. And um, it was an unmitigated disaster. So this architecture was then in place, this architecture of um, government schools, right? And... Then along came a guy called John Dewey. Well, thank you guys for sticking around to the end and being a part of the solution. No, I want to know who John Dewey is. Knowledge is power. Who's John Dewey? Stop it. Because <laughs> I did the same thing. I'm like, oh, why did he stop this here? But anyway, you guys, we will bring that to you. We'll bring the second part of this multi-part interview or conversation on Tuesday. In the meantime, you can go and read through Alex's, I, I think he's on 18 part now of his series on the Epic Times. Mm -hmm. And so I'll leave you guys a link for that so you can go and read all about the education um, that he's been diving into. And so be sure to join us on Tuesday. We'll be back with more. Have a great day and a wonderfully blessed weekend. Mm -hmm.